Finally, we've arrived at lead. It's surely an element you've heard of before, and you might think you already know the main points about lead. First and foremost, that it's deadly toxic. You might also know that it's been used in house paint and plumbing. In the past, but also in a shocking number of modern homes, too. That's not even the half of it. Lead has been responsible for some truly catastrophic public health crises, and we'll cover some of them in this episode. But it would be wrong to write off lead as just another poison that serves no good purpose. Throughout history, lead has actually served as one of the pillars of civilization, providing power for portable electrical devices, making our baubles more beautiful, acting as the main currency of warfare, and, ironically enough, even having legitimate modern medical uses. If you'll forgive the pun, lead really is heavy stuff. You're listening to the Episodic Table of Elements, and I'm T.R. Appleton. Each episode, we take a look at the fascinating true stories behind one element on the periodic table. Today, we're pondering lead. With lead, we close the books on the metals humanity has known since antiquity. The Greeks called it molybdos long before Carl Wilhelm Scheele studied element 42, while the Romans called it plumbum, which explains its chemical symbol. Lead is a metal that stands apart from its ancient peers. It's unconcerned with outshining silver and gold, and it doesn't compete with iron for strength or sturdiness. Lead is more of a metal of the people. Common, hardworking, and modest. And it filled a niche that no other material really could. Lead is heavier than those other metals by a wide margin, but it's also malleable, and resists corrosion. Those qualities make it suitable in a wide range of applications, from lining the hulls of ships to fire-resistant roofing. But perhaps no one used it more famously than the Romans. They employed it in their waterworks, aqueducts, and especially their piping. So close is the association there that the Romans' word for lead gives us the word plumbing. Unfortunately, any advantages lead has in the realm of water transport are pretty substantially outweighed by its toxicity, as we know today. The strange thing is, ancient Greeks and Romans knew that fact just as well as we do. In the year 14 BCE, famed Roman architect Vitruvius advised against lead pipes in his written work De Architectura. Water is much more wholesome from earthenware pipes than from lead pipes, he wrote, for it seems to be made injurious by lead, robbing the limbs of the virtues of the blood. Therefore it seems that water should, by no means, be brought in lead pipes if we desire to have it wholesome. That's not the only havoc Element 82 can wreak, though. Depending on the rate and severity of exposure, 
lead poisoning can cause a bright constellation of symptoms, from abdominal pain to seizures to sterility, along with a whole suite of nervous system complications like hallucinations, depression, delirium, and coma. Death soon follows. So why did they persist in using lead so widely? Put simply, they were addicted to the substance. It's not hard to see why. In addition to its resistance to rust or decaying in soil, it also doesn't spring pinhole leaks over time, like many other metals do. And before rubber became commonly available, lead was often the best way to seal joints in plumbing. So rather than stop using it, the Romans chose denial, downplaying the risks associated with the metal and carrying on like they always had. So did those of us far from the Mediterranean. And actually, we never really managed to kick the habit. Flint, Michigan has rightly attracted a lot of attention for its lead-lined water supply, but it's not really unusual in this regard. In 2017, Reuters found nearly 4,000 neighborhoods across the U.S. with lead poisoning rates twice as high as Flint at its worst. Lead plumbing also remains a problem in many other countries, but not really to the same extent. Flint has sort of become the poster child for the issue though, and what went wrong there could easily go wrong in other cities. So it's worth covering exactly what happened. For a long time, Flint drew its water from the same supply as Detroit, just 80 kilometers away. Flint had been struggling economically for decades though, and by 2011, the city needed to make big changes if it were to balance the books. To address this, then-Governor Rick Snyder appointed four emergency managers, unelected officials that superseded the power of the mayor and other local governing bodies. Under the leadership of those managers, it was decided that the city would switch to an alternative water supply as a cost-cutting measure. Almost immediately after that switch happened, residents reported that their tap water was dark brown, with a repulsive smell and taste. Some people experienced hair loss, rashes, and other acute maladies. Engine blocks made at a General Motors plant in Flint started coming off the line severely corroded. The root of the problem was the new water supply. Water from the Flint River was more acidic than what was previously running through the system, and on top of that, the new operators failed to provide basic, common water treatment, like adding phosphates to the water. These factors combined to wash away decades of gunk that had accumulated on the interior of the system's pipes. That gunk had actually served as a protective barrier against the lead of those same pipes. So, after getting flushed through the system, that lead became freshly exposed and polluted Flint's drinking water. Twice, the city insisted that the water was safe, even against objections from doctors and an offer from Detroit to revert to the old water supply. It took two years for anyone in power to admit there was even a problem. It all sounds rather Roman, actually. 
Snyder's eventual inadequate response was to buy $1 million worth of water filters and tests for the city. The crisis continued to be completely bungled for several more years. In August 2020, families affected by lead poisoning were collectively awarded a settlement of more than $600 million. Snyder and a handful of other officials were charged with misdemeanors and felonies, including two counts of manslaughter. Flint is back on the Detroit water system today, and Michigan now has some of the strictest drinking water regulations in the country. The EPA insists that Flint's water is now safe to drink. And there have been a lot of improvements, but it's hard to blame Flint's people if they're a bit skeptical. In 2019, Flint resident Melissa Mays had this to say. In some ways, we're better. In other ways, we're forever poisoned, damaged, traumatized. That's not going to ever be better. So why haven't Flint and all those other cities dug up their lead pipes and replaced them with copper or some space-age material? Unfortunately, it's not quite as easy as that. For starters, lead isn't used for the really big main pipes. Most lead plumbing is found inside old houses or at the point where a house taps into the local water supply. That means they're all over the place and the homeowner might be the one responsible for replacing those pipes, an inconvenience that can easily cost over $10,000. Putting the onus on millions of individuals to make the right and expensive decision is far more difficult than making a concerted public health effort. Except, even if there were a big, well-funded effort to replace lead pipes, there would be another problem. We're not really sure where they all are. Partly this is due to shoddy record keeping. Most American cities have no logs or maps of where lead pipes were installed. And what documentation does exist is often stored on index cards and written in pencil. Cities that are already teetering on the brink of financial ruin can't really afford to undertake the costly enterprise of digitizing those records. Instead, most places rely on hunting down lead with chemical tests. But there's a problem there, too. Dozens of cities have been caught cheating to conceal high levels of lead in their drinking water. They had many methods. Deliberate use of tests that underestimate lead levels, non-compliance with time limits, and advising water departments to resample any results that violated federal regulations. Among those cities were Chicago, Boston, Philadelphia, and Milwaukee. In some cases, those test results were faked with the assistance from the very federal department that's supposed to enforce them, the Environmental Protection Agency. Lawsuits have been filed in several places, and some of those cases have even succeeded. But once again, that sort of piecemeal approach will inevitably leave some communities to remain in dangerous situations. And there is yet another factor making it difficult to find all the lead pipes. Even when there is no malfeasance afoot, 
many lead tests simply aren't very good at their job. In 2007, the Consumer Product Safety Commission found that half of their sampled home test kits provided false negatives for lead. In 2017, the FDA warned of similar problems with tests made by Magellan Diagnostics, a company that calls itself, quote, the most trusted name in lead testing. And all that's without taking into account the many tests that provide ambiguous results. All those problems can be overcome, but only by spending a lot of money. Infrastructure maintenance doesn't tend to get a lot of love as it is, regardless of how many lives it might save. At least we're finally heading in the right direction, though. Each year, a little less lead contaminates the water we all drink. It's not much, but we can be glad that we stopped pumping it into the air we breathe a long time ago. Thomas Midgley Jr. had the kind of inquisitive, dauntless, optimistic mind that's almost universally lauded in the history of science. But, at least in this one case, the world probably would have been a far better place if he lacked those qualities. Early automobiles were quite different from the vehicles we drive around today. They were far simpler, of course, and had all kinds of problems that the modern driver would find completely foreign. In the 1920s, one of those problems was knocking, fuel igniting too early or too late, causing a terrible racket and damage to the engine. Midgley only knew one way of solving problems like that. Brute force. When he was a kid, he tried to invent a better spitball, the baseball technique in which a pitcher would surreptitiously apply a little spit to the ball, causing it to curve as it approached the batter. After countless attempts with any substance he could get his hands on, Midgley found that slippery elm bark had the greatest effect. His discovery became quite influential in the sport. His approach to the engine-knocking problem was basically the same. Over five years, he and his team tested 33,000 different fuel additives, anything from camphor to melted butter. Eventually, they stumbled upon an answer. Tetraethyl lead. Just a small amount of this substance could render a car's engine practically silent, but the lead doesn't disappear after streaming through a car's engine. It goes right out through the exhaust, filling the atmosphere, and eventually, the lungs, of anyone unfortunate enough to be nearby. This was well known at the time. In 1922, a DuPont executive described tetraethyl lead as, quote, a colorless liquid of sweetish odor, very poisonous if absorbed through the skin, resulting in lead poisoning almost immediately. Midgley was well aware of these facts. He simply didn't care. Can you imagine how much money we're going to make with this? 
he said during a phone call with his business partner. We're going to make $200 million. Maybe even more. It was brought to markets under the name Ethel. You know, like the name of that sweet gal who operates the switchboard for Ma Bell. And they avoided any mention of lead wherever possible. The first tank of ethyl gasoline was sold in Dayton, Ohio in February 1923. Midgley couldn't be there, though, since he was under the weather with a terrible case of lead poisoning. Maybe that could be chalked up to coincidence, but it wasn't long before lead poisoning started to become a serious problem among factory workers. A few even died. Management insisted that this had nothing to do with the product, though. One Standard Oil executive said that those men, quote, probably worked too hard. Internal memos at Standard, DuPont, and General Motors quietly acknowledged the hazard presented by tetraethyl lead, but Midgley went out in public and put on quite a show of how safe his product was. I'm not taking any chance, he proclaimed as he washed his hands in leaded gasoline and breathed deeply of its fumes. Nor would I take any chance doing that every day. He might have talked a good game, but Midgley wrote in private letters that the liquid burns and stings the skin, and he complained of, quote, lead-lined lungs that drove him to convalesce in the warm Florida sun. Oil plant workers continued to fall ill, but with tetraethyl lead filling the fuel tanks of cars worldwide, its effects were being felt far beyond the factory floor. With smaller, still-developing bodies, children are the most susceptible to the irreversible effects of lead poisoning. Hyperactivity, learning disabilities, and brain damage in American children all rose in concert with the use of leaded gasoline. And tetraethyl lead carried an additional social cost beyond its direct effects on public health. In 2000, U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development consultant Rick Nevin published research that the psychiatric and developmental effects of lead poisoning in the country's children could explain 90% of the variation in violent crime in America over the 20th century. In other words... Children who suffered the ill effects of atmospheric lead in the 1940s and 50s were more likely to perpetrate violent crime in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Further research showed that those states that banned leaded gasoline first saw violent crime rates decline in tandem. Obviously, there are many factors that cause crime to rise and fall, but in this case, the research is clear. Stunting the health and development of children by steadily filling their lungs with lead was one major factor. Research had clearly shown the deleterious effects of leaded gasoline well in advance of the 21st century. In the US, it started getting phased out in the 1970s, and it was outright banned nationwide by the mid-90s. Lead hasn't been an ingredient in petrol for several decades. Astoundingly, that was not the full extent of the harm Thomas Midgley caused to the environment. 
In the 1930s, he pioneered the development of chlorofluorocarbons as a refrigerant. They became just about as widespread as his prior invention, and if you listened to the news at all in the 1990s, you probably remember that they were one of the leading causes for damage to the Earth's ozone layer. It's truly astonishing that one human can be held responsible for so much damage to life on Earth. Environmental historian J.R. McNeil has claimed that Thomas Midgley is, quote, the single most dangerous organism in the history of the Earth. He stands in stark opposition to this program's stated rejection of the heroic theory of scientific discovery. Although I'd say he is, at best, more of an anti-hero. And who knows how much more devastation he might have caused were it not for his timely death. In 1940, he contracted polio, which eventually rendered him paralyzed from the waist down. Yet not even this could stop his lamentably inventive and unwavering spirit. He devised a novel system of ropes and pulleys that allowed him to independently lift himself out of bed and into a wheelchair. As tragic as it is then, it's not really so surprising to learn that he eventually died not from polio, but as a victim of cosmic irony. One morning in 1944, while struggling to get out of bed, he became tangled up among the device's cables and wires. He choked to death, a victim of his own ingenuity. You can see why Led has earned a somewhat solemn reputation. In one of her poems, Emily Dickinson evoked the cold, heavy metal while describing the pangs of death and grief. After a great pain, a formal feeling comes. The nerves sit ceremonious like tombs. The stiff heart questions, was it he that bore? And yesterday? Or centuries before? The feet, mechanical, go round of ground or air or aught, a wooden way, regardless grown, a quartz contentment like a stone. This is the hour of lead, remembered, if outlived, as freezing persons recollect the snow. First chill, then stupor, then the letting go. Peter Reich, a consulting author for the Environmental Defense Fund, noted in a 1992 paper a biochemical association alongside the poetic one. Though the poet was describing emotions rather than lead poisoning, he wrote, the poem aptly describes some of the symptoms of lead intoxication. It's a little funny that we've spent so much time talking about the hazards of lead without mentioning bullets. Perhaps the most common way that Element 82 has claimed lives. Certainly the most deliberate. Yet, 
Led's reputation is not exclusively an ignominious one. Removed from our paints, our fuels, our batteries, and our construction materials, the average person is now most likely to have their livelihood protected by lead, rather than claimed by it. Being so dense, and relatively abundant, it makes an effective and inexpensive material to shield against ionizing radiation. The apron you might wear at the dentist's office when the technician x-rays your teeth is one such example of this use. On a grander scale, it can often be found performing a similar duty in nuclear facilities. So try not to be too hard on old Plumbum. It's not malicious, just something that demands respect and care. It's certainly capable of causing great harm, but like many of the elements on the periodic table, it could just as well save your life under the right circumstances. When collecting lead, just be mindful of the condition of your sample, wear protective gear if possible, and try to stay out of the way of any lead moving at an especially high velocity. Thanks for listening to the Episodic Table of Elements. Music is by Kai Engel. To learn about the biogenic threat that was also present in Flint's water supply, visit episodictable.com slash pb. Next time, we'll put a little pep in our step with bismuth. Looking at my calendar for the near future, I'm gonna go ahead and preemptively say that it'll take me a little longer than usual to put that episode together. So it should air on Monday, June 14th. I know it took a while to produce this episode, and I really appreciate the very kind and understanding comments some of you left on the blog. I might continue to operate on a slightly slower schedule through the summer, but my plan is to be back on our regular fortnightly track by August. Until next time, this is T.R. Appleton, reminding you that it's not always such a good thing to leave a mark on history. <laughs>